And if you have your Bibles, please turn to, flip to, scroll to, press Acts, the book of Acts in the New Testament. It's the fifth book in the Bible, first, the fifth book in the New Testament. We're going to be in Acts chapter one today. And hey, by the way, if you're new to Thrive and you're new to church generally, maybe never been to church before, maybe come in from a different religious background or no background at all, you're just here to explore, you're curious. We're so thrilled that you're here. And we hope that you find that Thrive is a safe place for you, a place where you can find hope, a place where you can find community, a place where you can find maybe some answers, some of the questions that you're asking. If you have any questions at all, you can always email us at info at thrivechurch.ca. We'd love to serve you in any way that we can. Welcome everybody to Thrive Church. Today, I'm so excited to launch with each and every one of you a brand new message series that we're starting today. And the series that we're starting today is called To the Ends of the Earth. Why is the series called To the Ends of the Earth? It's because over the next several weeks, we're going to go on a journey together. We're going to go through a journey through one of the most powerful, most interesting, most adventurous, most exciting, most mysterious books in all the Bible. It's called the book of Acts. Now, maybe this summer you didn't get to travel the way that you ideally hoped to travel. Maybe because of high gas prices, maybe rising hotel fees, Airbnbs didn't work out, long border waits, annoying flight cancellations, ongoing concerns with COVID. Maybe for some of those reasons or more, you couldn't travel the way you hoped this summer. Or maybe you have been traveling, but it hasn't been fun or invigorating. It's more been draining and stressful for you. If that's you, then I'm here to invite you on a journey journey that's going to refresh your life. I'm going to invite you today to a journey that's going to renew your heart, and all you need is to have an open mind as we go into the series today called To the Ends of the Earth, because as we travel through the powerful book of Acts, we're going to see how this movement that Jesus started takes off and becomes the greatest, most influential, most diverse, most multicultural, the largest movement the world has ever seen. It's a movement that started 2,000 years ago, and it continues to this day. It's a movement that has changed more lives to the better in history than any other movement. It's a movement that has touched people on every continent, in every culture, every country on this planet. And in the process of seeing how this movement expanded from one place called Jerusalem to places all over the world, I think you're also going to appreciate something else. You're going to appreciate what God is doing in you. You're going to appreciate the work that God is doing, what he has done, what he is doing, and what he will do, and how you can work with God to maximize the impact and the blessing that comes from that work. Welcome, everybody, to To the Ends of the Earth. Turn to neighbor and say, get ready for this. Get ready for this. And hey, by the way, we're going through the book of Acts, and we're not just doing this on Sundays, but we're also doing this every day through something that we call Pastor JB's Game Time Sharing, is that if you don't just want to fly over Acts on Sundays with us, but you want to walk through Acts with us every day, then you can go to mythought.info and sign up for Pastor JB's Game Time Sharing. What we'll do is we're going to send you early every morning a little email with a passage from the book of Acts that you can read and think about, and some thoughts from me on what does this tell us about Jesus? And what does this pastor tell us about how we can live our lives in light of God's word? And so it's with that in mind that we're going to get into the first message of this new series today. Today's message is called, I'm ready for takeoff. I'm ready for takeoff. See, today we begin the book of Acts and we're going to look at how Jesus gets his young church ready to take off and to change the world. And the process, we're going to learn what you need if you want to take off on the journey that God has 
for you. And so with that in mind, look at Acts chapter one, verse one with me, and let's look at it together. Read it with you in a big, loud voice. It says, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Stop right there. Growing up as a kid, I had an uncle. He was a granduncle, and I called him Uncle Luke. Because of his profession, many people referred to him as Dr. Luke. Now, Dr. Luke, my Uncle Luke, he lived in California. And every time he would fly over to Vancouver and visit family, we would all, as an extended family, meet together in a local Chinese restaurant. There'd be an adult's table, there'd be a kid's table. And this would always happen, is that every time we'd get together for these family meals, that at some point in the meal, my Uncle Luke would call me over from the kid's table. I'm probably seven, eight years old. He'd call me over, he'd hold me in his arms, and with everybody listening, he would say to me, JB, you come with me to California because I have a swimming pool. And notice he wouldn't say, JB, come to California and I'll take you to Disneyland. Or JB, come to California, I'll take you to Universal Studios. He didn't say that. He says, JB, come to California because I have a swimming pool. And I'm thinking to myself, does he think that we Canadians don't have a swimming pool or we've never seen a swimming pool before? In any event, no, he's no longer around. But I remember my uncle Luke as this very kind man. And I do kind of wish I saw his swimming pool. But see, here's the thing. Why do I mention my uncle, Dr. Luke? It's because although the author of Acts doesn't identify himself by name in the book of Acts, by far the most likely author of the book of Acts is a doctor called Luke. Now, the reasons for believing that Luke is the author of the book of Acts are way too many for us to get into right now, but it suffices for us to say today that Acts is a sequel to another very famous book in the New Testament. It's called the Gospel of Luke. And that's why in verse 1 of Acts 1, Luke refers to my former book. He's referring to the Gospel of Luke. In other words, together, the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts are volume 1 and volume 2 of Luke history regarding Jesus and his church, his followers. And very likely what would happen is that the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts would travel together is that people would read the gospel of Luke and they would read the gospel or they'd read the book of Acts. This is before the Bible was collated into 66 books. They would have these separate manuscripts. And what would happen is eventually the early church leaders decided, okay, we're going to collate the Bible now. So we're going to put the gospel of Luke together with the other gospels, Matthew, Mark, and John, put those four together, the four fold gospel, as some people say, and we're going to put Acts as a standalone work on its own, but they were always meant to be together. They have the same purpose in mind. And see, here we We've got Dr. Luke, he's a physician, he's a Christian, he's a dear friend and traveling companion and co-worker of one of the main characters in the book of Acts, his name is Paul. And while Luke wanted every pe- everybody, every person on the planet to read what he was writing in Acts, the fact is Luke actually dedicates this book as well as his gospel, the gospel of Luke, to a very specific individual. That person is a guy called Theophilus. Now, not much is known about Theophilus. We know that his name means lover of God, which has led some people to think, oh, I bet it's a code word. It's a code word to address every follower of Jesus because we're all supposed to be lovers of God. No, probably not because Theophilus was a common name back in the ancient Near East. And also, you know, in the Gospel of Luke, is that Luke, he refers to Theophilus as most excellent Theophilus, which suggests that Theophilus was a man of wealth, 
He was a man of social standing, and he was a, someone who was learning about Christianity and wanted to learn more. And so what Luke does is with very careful, painstaking detail, he starts to research the historical documents and do e- and interviews with eyewitnesses about the life of Jesus, his ministry, and his church in order to document what happened when Jesus was alive, what happened when Jesus died, what happened when Jesus rose again, and what happened to the church that he left behind about 30 years after Jesus left this earth. And because of this, Luke is often known as the first historian in the church and an excellent historian at that. In fact, many of the people, places, events that are mentioned in Acts have later been confirmed by archaeological evidence and historical evidence outside of the Bible. But how many of you know that Acts is not just a history book? You're going to find that Acts actually serves several important purposes for us today. First off, the book of Acts is a bridge. The book of Acts serves as this bridge between the gospels at the beginning of the New Testament and the letters, or sometimes called the epistles, at the back of the New Testament. See, the New Testament begins with these four gospels, all talking about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then if you keep on reading the New Testament, you'll find that there's a bunch of these letters that are written decades later to churches by church leaders like Peter, Paul, you know, John, James, and they're writing these letters to these churches. And what Acts does is it's a bridge that kind of shows you what happened in between. It shows you how some of these churches came into being and why some of these letters were written to these churches. And so without the book of Acts, it would be tougher to make sense of the back half of the New Testament because Acts is a bridge. There's another reason or another purpose that Acts serves is that Acts is both an encouragement to Christians and a stereotype buster for Christianity. See, in other words, what do I mean by that? Is that when Luke wrote Acts, persecution of Christians was rampant. If, that you, if you lived in the ancient Near East around Luke's time when he's writing this, if you were a Christian, if you identified yourself as Christian, your life would be in danger. Is that you could be killed for your faith. And so Luke, he's writing Acts to encourage Christians to stay strong in their faith, to not give up, to remember the examples of other Christians so that they could keep on going and be encouraged in their faith. But it was also not just for Christians. It was also for people who had stereotypes about Christianity. In a way, Acts was kind of meant for the entire Roman Empire to see, hey guys, look, Christians aren't bad people. Christians are peaceful, law-abiding citizens. We're not the violent, you know, the political rebels that so many stereotypes call us to be. And so it's busting certain stereotypes that people had about Christians back then. There's a third purpose to the book of Acts. The third purpose is that the book of Acts shows God's work in the very earliest church and God's will for us today. See, Luke writes Acts to show God's incredible work in the early church, which caused his church to expand so fast to so many places, and it also shows us something for us today, which is the hope we have in Jesus is for everyone. It's for every person, regardless of your country, your culture, you know, regardless of your background, your ethnicity, your race, is that Jesus is hope for the world. It's for everyone. And if you are someone who wants to know God's will for your life and do God's will for your life, then the book of Acts contains some really valuable lessons on how to discover God's will and do God's will. And so for all these reasons and more, the book of Acts is so very important. And that's why we're looking at it together. Would you look at verse three with me of Acts chapter one? What does it say? It says, read it with me, after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was God. Who's he? It's Jesus. So Jesus, he suffers. And particularly, he suffers on the cross. He dies on the cross for our sins. But then after he's buried, he rises again. And it says that he showed 
he showed himself to these men and gave convincing proofs, many convincing proofs. How convincing? Well, in today's Pastor JB's game time sharing, if you didn't receive it, we actually sent a link to all those who receive our game time sharing with a message that we did just a couple years ago on the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ and all these different, very, very persuasive proofs that show that Jesus didn't just die, but he rose again. And the point is this, Jesus is alive not as a ghost, not as some poltergeist, not as some hallucination or an apparition, but Jesus has physically risen from the grave. And see, according to the New Testament records, Jesus appeared to over 500 people in different places, different times, Galilee, Judea, Jerusalem. He appears to big crowds. He appears to individuals. He appears to small groups. He appears to skeptics who doubted him. He appears to people who believed in him before. He, and, and as a result, there are people who are coming to faith in Jesus that didn't believe him before, such as his own half-brothers. Last couple weeks ago, we talked about how Jesus' own brothers didn't believe that he was the son of God. He's like, you claim to be the son of God? Who do you think you are? You're our half-brother. Who do you think you are? They didn't believe him. They rejected him. They mocked him. But then after Jesus' resurrection, these half-brothers, they start to worship Jesus as God. What would it take for you to worship your brother as God? It would probably take a lot. And see, for example, James, one of Jesus' half-brothers, he didn't believe in Jesus at all. But after his resurrection, James becomes one of the leaders of the church and even dies for his faith, his faith that his brother is God. And see, that's what's happening. Jesus, he's rising again. He's appearing to people. And look at verse three. It says, he appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. Just as Jesus in the gospel of Luke was tempted in the desert and tested for 40 days to get him ready for his public ministry. So right here, you find Jesus, he's spending 40 days getting his disciples ready for their public ministry. And as part of this, Luke, he emphasizes one thing that Jesus taught his disciples during those 40 days. Read verse four. What does it say? Read it with me. It says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. See what's going on here. See, in the gospel of Luke, before Jesus begins his public ministry, Jesus gets baptized. Just as we get baptized in water as an evidence of our faith, Jesus, to identify with sinners like us, he gets baptized as well. And the Bible says something incredible. The gospel says something incredible about what happened at Jesus' baptism is that when Jesus comes up out of the water, it says the Holy Spirit, like a dove, descended upon him. Now, that's not to say that the Holy Spirit is a dove, that when you see a dove, you're, oh, Holy Spirit. No, that, that's not what he's talking about. It's the best picture that Luke can use to describe the gentle power of the Holy Spirit resting on Jesus. And what's going on is that now in Acts chapter one, Jesus is saying to his disciples, hey, before you begin your public ministry, wait here, because in a few days, I'm gonna baptize you with the same gift that I have. It's the one that my father has promised. It's the one I've been telling you about all this time. He's the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is gonna come on you. And see, who is the Holy Spirit? Simply put, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God. And one of the biggest themes in the book of Acts is that you can't know the will of God and you can't do the work of God without the help of the Holy Spirit. Turn to your neighbor and say, I need the Holy Spirit. See, in other words, without the help of the Holy Spirit, you can't live the life that God called you to live. And here's a question for you today. How dependent are you on the Holy Spirit to live the life that you're living today? 
or to do the work that you're doing today. Is that, for example, when you serve at church, when you're getting ready to lead on the stage or to serve kids or to serve people online, do you seek the help and the power of the Holy Spirit to help you and say, Holy Spirit, I need you. I can't do this without you. And you spend time seeking the Holy Spirit and asking for his help, or do you just kind of do things on your own? Or say when you're making big decisions about the future, do you seek the Holy Spirit for guidance and go, Holy Spirit, what do you think we should do? Like, what, what's the best way to do this? How can, and you spend time with the Holy Spirit. You try to seek what God wants for your life or you just kind of do what makes sense to you. See, we can't worship. We can't grow. We can't serve. We can't lead others to Jesus. And we can't love people the way God made us to love people without the Holy Spirit. And that's why the best thing that you can do when you start the day or the best thing you can do while you're going through the day is to pray, Holy Spirit, I need you. I'm desperate for you. I can't do anything without you. And come to God with an honest heart because it's amazing. Just what a minute or even five minutes looking to the Holy Spirit humbly and honestly can do for your life. If you believe that, say amen. And see, Jesus, he valued the Holy Spirit so much that he tells his disciples here, don't leave home without him. Don't go anywhere. Don't leave Jerusalem without the Holy Spirit. Look at verse six. It says this. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? See, what do they mean by that? See, Jesus, he's resurrected. And the question on the disciples' minds now is, Lord, when are you going to restore Israel to a place of blessing and power and prominence and glory? Now, they might have been wondering because, you know, Israel has been under Roman rule and occupation for many decades now. And they're thinking, okay, when can we finally be our own country again? They might be thinking about that. Or they might be thinking about the end times, how the, the scriptures would say that one day God is going to exalt Israel at the very, very end. And they're thinking, oh, is this happening now? Are these the last days? Is it now? When is this going to happen, Jesus? And see, how does Jesus respond in verse 7? Look at it with me. What does he say? He says, he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. What does that mean? So the disciples ask, so when are you going to do this? When are you going to bless Israel? When are you going to restore the blessing? Is it now? Is it now? Is it, is it here? Is it time? You know, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And, and Jesus is saying, that's not for you to know. We turn and we say, that's not for you to know. That's not for you. No. And here, what, here's a question for you. Though. Is there a time or a date of a future event that you wish you could know? Kind of like, man, when will my stocks finally turn around? Or, you know, when will I finally meet that special someone? When will I get married? You know, how long until I can figure out my career? How long do I have to live? How long do I have with this person? When will, you know, this thing turn around? When, when will the Canucks finally win their Stanley Cup? You know, when will Jesus come again? Are there certain questions you have about future events where you kind of like want to know when? When is it going to happen? Let me tell you, there's a lesson we can learn from verse 7, which is that there are certain things in life certain dates, certain times that we are just not made to know. And that's not everything. For example, if, if you're married and you're, you know, you're, your wife comes up to you and goes, honey, happy anniversary. What, you forgot? And you're oh, uh, you remember what Pastor JB said? There's a certain things in life that we're just not made to know. And we just don't supposed to know certain times. Don't, don't, don't use that as an excuse. It's not an excuse. Remember your anniversary. But there's certain things that you're not supposed to know. And for example, how many well-meaning but misguided Christians have made fools of themselves and a bit of a mockery of the Christian faith by claiming to know exactly when Jesus is going to come again and yet the year 2000 comes and we're all still here. Jesus hasn't arrived yet. It's because it's not for us to know. And see, I find this. Sometimes we get so wrapped up and so worried trying to figure out things that aren't for us to know. 
And see, what good does that produce? Often it produces anxiety and stress for us. Often it results in us neglecting the things that we were made to focus on because we're focused on these other things. Often it damages our relationships and it hurts our reputation in the process. For example, I've got a friend who tends to have this worrying habit about this person. And, and this person, whenever they read the news, whenever they hear anything, they start to panic. And one of their first instincts is to text me about it and say, oh, I'm worried about this. I'm worried about this. And, and you know what? A- after months of this, I'm like, oh, this is stressful, man. It's like your stress is coming on. And so, and so I, I actually sat them down one day and I was saying, you know, look, I, I love spending time with you. I love hearing from you. But your stress comes and becomes my stress when you don't contain it very well. So can I ask you to do this? Before you panic and send me a really panicky, stressful text, could you talk to God about it first? And then I, I, I gave this friend of mine a calendar with like, you know, every day there's a promise from God in the scriptures. And I'm like, why don't you read this first, pray about it first, and then think about talking to me about it. And since that time, they've never sent me a word text. They still text me, but they don't text me that stuff anymore. And guess what? I don't know if it's helped that person, but oh, it's helped me so much. Oh, life is so much more peaceful. Oh my goodness. What's the lesson here? Is that instead of worrying about what's out of your control, do your best with what's in your control and trust God with what is out of your control. Amen? See, is there something that's out of your control right now that you keep on worrying about? Something about your finances, your future, our relationship? Is there something that you keep wanting that isn't for you? Instead of wanting what you can't have or worrying about what you can't control, how about this? Do the best you can with what's in your control. Focus on that. Cherish what you have. And then with what's out of your control, trust God. Because if Jesus conquered your two biggest problems in life, he conquered sin at the cross, he conquered death at the resurrection, then how will he not also be with you and help you conquer whatever little problem you're going through right now? Oh, come on, if you believe that, give God some praise in this place together right now. Will you turn your neighbor and say, God loves you, so trust him. God loves you, so trust him. Now let's look at the second part of Jesus' response. Look at verse eight, what does it say? It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So what's going on? Remember, the disciples are asking Jesus, hey, Lord, when are you gonna bless Israel? When are you gonna restore Israel? When are you gonna exalt Israel? It's all about Israel, Israel, Israel. And see, Jesus, he responds by saying, hey guys, you are gonna be my witnesses not just in Jerusalem, i.e. Israel, but in all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, what is Jesus saying? While the disciples were focused on wanting Israel to be blessed, God was focused on blessing the world. Is that while the disciples were focused on restoring their nation, God was focused on reaching every nation. While you know, the disciples were focused on wanting to be blessed, God was focused on making them a blessing. And while the disciples focused on something relatively small, God was focused on something much, much bigger. And don't you find that happens even today, even with you and me? is that sometimes we can be so focused and fixated on something small in our lives while God is focused on something bigger and we miss it. Has that ever happened to you before? You know, years ago when I was in second year law school, I was so worried about 
you know, am I going to find a good job after law school? Am I going to find a good job after my second year of law school? And I was applying for all these different positions as every second year law student does. And I thought I had good grades. I thought I had a good resume. I thought it was a good candidate. Did all these different interviews. But for some reason, the doors never opened. Every door closed shut in Toronto, in Vancouver, in Calgary. I just like, no place wanted me for some reason. I don't know. I didn't get it. I was like, what's wrong with me? And what's wrong with this system? I was just like, what's happening? I was so worried. And then there's this opportunity that opened up to me to go on missions to China. And so I took that door, I went through it, and I ended up having the time of my life. We saw people come to know Jesus in some really cool ways, and I came back and I interviewed and I got the job that I was always dreaming of, and it was an amazing time to experience God in so many different ways. But the biggest lesson I learned from that one summer was this, it's not about me, it's about Jesus. And see, it's not about how God can serve your agenda, it's about how you can serve God's agenda. It's not about how you can be blessed as much as about how God can make you a blessing. It's not about how you can build your own kingdom, be so happy and comfortable, but it's about how you fit into the bigger kingdom and story that God is building. If you believe that, say amen. And see, what's the lesson here? Is that don't just focus on your own story, your own little story, but realize that your life fits into a much bigger story that God is writing with your life. You might be just so focused on that relationship right now. You might be so focused on that legal problem right now. You might be so focused on that uncertainty right now when actually God, who's bigger, is actually using it all to write a bigger story than you could even imagine. You focus only on your story, you're going to miss the bigger thing that God is doing. But if you seek God's kingdom first and say, no matter what, no matter how stressful it is, no matter how uncertain things are, I'm going to seek God's kingdom first. Guess what's going to happen? Not only are you going to discover what God is doing in your life, not only to discover how you fit into that, but even more, he's going to add everything you need. If you believe that, give God some praise in this place together right now. Don't just focus on your own little story because you're fitting into a much bigger story that God is writing. Look at verse nine. What does it say? It says this. It says, after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? The same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now, what's going on here? Imagine you're one of Jesus' disciples. Jesus has resurrected. He's now standing before you. He's teaching. He's blessing you. It might feel so nice that you even close your eyes for a moment, but then when you open your eyes, oh my goodness, you see that Jesus, his feet are above the ground. You're like, do you guys see what I'm seeing? And then the more you look at the seat, you look at your own feet, okay, I'm on the ground. His feet are off the ground. And when you look at the gap between his feet and the ground, it's just getting wider and wider and wider. All of a sudden, he's kind of going over the plants. He's going over the bushes. Eventually, he's going, he's about at your shoulders. Eventually, he's getting even taller, and he's going higher and higher. Now, he's above the olive grove. Now, he's going into the sky. You're like, Jesus, are you okay? Do you need help? Do, should we call 911? Are you all right? And he just, he just keeps on going. He goes way past. He goes past the clouds to the point where you don't see him anymore. And as you're looking up in the sky, the next thing you know is there's someone on the ground whose voice you don't recognize. And you look at them. There's two guys there dressed in white. And one of them says, hey, guys, what are you doing? What are you doing just standing here looking up at the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven, he's going to come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. And see, keep this in mind. Jesus, he's resurrected. 
He's alive physically. He's not a ghost. He's physically alive. The scars are on his hands. The scars are on his feet. And he's alive. He's showing himself to him. But even then, he would appear and he would disappear. He'd go you know, behind locked doors and he'd appear to people. And he would appear and then he'd disappear again. But this is different. Now, this is Jesus. He's leaving. He's ascending to heaven and only to come back when it was time. And see, this is the ascension of Jesus. See, we often at Christmas time, we talk about the importance of Jesus' birth. And every week, especially at Easter, we talk about the importance of Jesus' death and his resurrection. But you don't, we don't often talk about his ascension. We don't really often focus on that. But I'm here to tell you that Jesus' ascension is just as important. Let me give you just a few reasons why Jesus' ascension into heaven is so important for us today. You can write this down. Number one, by ascending to heaven, Jesus proved once again that he is no ordinary human being, that he is the son of God. See, Jesus ascending to heaven is just one more proof that Jesus is who he claims to be. Every miracle he performed, his own resurrection, and now his ascension, all point to one conclusion. This guy ain't a liar. This guy ain't crazy, though he makes some crazy claims. There's something to him because there's power that we don't have that he has, and now he's ascending to heaven. And see, just as Jesus came into this world in a miraculous way via virgin birth, it makes sense in a way that Jesus would leave this world unassisted in the most miraculous way. Now, you may be, oh, I don't believe in miracles, J.B. I believe in science. Well, guess what? I believe in science as well, but I also believe in miracles because I believe that there's a God who stands outside of time and space who caused this whole universe to come to being, that there's good scientific, philosophical reasons to believe that there is a God who made it all happen. And if there's a God who can do that, then it's not irrational to believe that miracles in the Bible can happen as well. And so, you know what? By him ascending that way, it was proof that Jesus is no ordinary guy. He is the son of God. That's the first reason why the ascension is important. Number two, Jesus' ascension reminds us that earth is not our final home. Heaven is waiting. See, imagine this. If Jesus just stayed on earth and he never left, we would have no reason to look forward to heaven, would we? There'd be no reason for it because Jesus is here. All of our hope would be in this life, but in so doing, we would miss the whole point of why Jesus came because Jesus didn't come so you could have a happy, comfortable life on earth and you could be living like a king or a queen, but he came so that you could be in eternity with him. And that's why he came. That's why he's going to the place that we will be by his grace one day. Jesus essentially reminds us that it's not about our 70, 80, 90 years if you're lucky on this earth, but it's about heaven. That's why Jesus went there. He didn't stay here. Number three, reason number three, by ascending, Jesus was keeping his promise. You know, if I'm Jesus, I'm thinking to myself, man, I'm resurrected now. This is the most momentum I might ever have. It's time to build a building. It's time to do a capital campaign. It's time to reach as many followers as I possibly can through Twitter, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to stay here. I'm going to be at the helm. I'm going to build my empire right here, right now. It's going to be the greatest kingdom that's ever been, that's ever existed, and I'm going to be right here present for it. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Why? Let me give you one reason. John 14, 2. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I'm going there to prepare a place for you. In other words, even before Jesus died on the cross, Jesus promised his disciples and everyone who would believe in him, I'm going to go to heaven and I'm going to prepare a place for you in my father's house. 
It's because that's God's heart for you. Rather than having an empire on earth, he would rather have you in heaven. That's because you are God's treasure. Turn to him and say, you are God's treasure. And so Jesus ascending to heaven, that's Jesus fulfilling that promise. He's always faithful to his promises. Number four, by ascending to heaven, Jesus completed his father's mission. You know, there's a reason why the Bible says that Jesus ascended to heaven and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down. By sat down, that doesn't mean sit down. It also means he finished his work. He's done. Mission accomplished. That's what Jesus did when he sat down. And notice, he didn't sit down on earth. He sat down in heaven because his mission, the one that his father gave him, it is finished. It is done. That's another reason why he ascended, to finish the mission that he started. Number five, Jesus' ascension foreshadows his second coming. Is that how Jesus ascended is a clue to how Jesus is going to return. And look at verse 11 with me again. It says, it says, the same Jesus who's been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Now, we don't know when Jesus will return. Just like we said, there's certain times, certain dates that we are not meant to know. But we do know a little bit about how Jesus will return. And that's because Verse 11 tells us, that's because the Bible tells us is that when Jesus returns, it won't be some subjective spiritual experience where, oh, I see Jesus, he's back, he's back. Do you see him? No, it's not gonna be one of those. It's gonna be this physical bodily return where everyone in the world, regardless of whether they believe in him or not, they're all gonna see him and it's gonna be the most incredible day the world has ever seen. It's because Jesus' ascension foreshadows his second coming. Number, one, number six, reason number six, by ascending, Jesus got to go home and receive the honor and glory that Jesus alone deserves. See, when Jesus was born, in the gospel of Luke, it reports that a multitude of angels, the whole heavenly host, the gospel of Luke says, are there to announce and celebrate the birth of Jesus. They say, glory to God in the highest, on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And so there's all these countless angels, this army of angels that you cannot count that are all here celebrating his birth. Why is it then that whereas there's multitudes of angels at Jesus' birth, at his ascension, there's only two angels. What's up with that? Are they like, yeah, yeah, it's not as big a deal as the birth. You know, yeah, we've we, we done it. We, 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 it was actually kind of hard to get here. So yeah, we're just good with two. No, what's going on is that the rest are in heaven waiting for his arrival. Because you got to understand this. There are two parts to Jesus' ascension. There is a sending off. There is a receiving. There is a departure. There is an arrival. I think of one of my favorite athletes of all time. His name is Wayne Gretzky. The greatest player who ever played hockey, for my money, it's not Connor McDavid. It's not Hendrick Sedin. It's not Sidney Crosby. It's number 99, Wayne Gretzky. And you can feel free to disagree with me or not, but the fact is that when Wayne Gretzky was playing for his storied franchise, the Edmonton Oilers, this championship-winning franchise, in 1988, a bomb of news dropped where he was told, and the world was told, Wayne Gretzky has been traded. He's been traded from the Edmonton Oilers to the City of Angels, Los Angeles. He's going to be a Los Angeles king. 
And on that day, I can remember seeing the news on TV and, you know, the Edmonton Sun would report, you know, this is a day of mourning. You know, our champion has gone. And you know, even Wayne Gretzky, I can remember him at a press conference. He's wearing the striped, you know, dress shirt and he's crying. He's got a tissue wiping his nose. He's like, I told my teammate Mark I wouldn't cry. Oh, oh, and, he's, and he's crying. He's so sad. But then hours later, he gets on a plane. He arrives in the city of Angels, Los Angeles, and there's a party. Everyone is cheering, and he's smiling as well. He puts on, wearing the same striped gesture, he puts on an LA Kings jersey. And they're like, wow, it's the new king of LA. And I'm sure if I was him, I'd be like, where's my swimming pool? Right? And what's going on? There is a departure, and there's an arrival. That's what Jesus' ascension was like. There was Jesus departing earth and arriving home in heaven. And see, when Jesus, he departed earth, he was returning to the real city of angels, to be the real king of the angels. If you believe that, say amen. And see, I, I just imagine, you know, just like the news feeds that would happen in the angel Twitter, you know, in, in, in heaven, you know, oh, the captain is back and ready to lead the charge again. Hashtag ascension, you know, or the prince has returned, ready to take his throne. Hashtag I'm back, you know, or the sun was gone and has come back again. And see, here's the thing. I could just imagine if there was so much rejoicing over one sinner who repents and comes home to God, how much more rejoicing is there when the son of God, the one who made it possible for everyone else to be up there, when the son of God, Jesus, the darling of heaven, the son of God, the father's one and only son, when he returns home to heaven. Could you imagine that moment when the father and the son embrace again? Oh my goodness, couldn't put words to it. Ephesians 4.10 says it this way. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. I'd love to preach a message just on this verse alone, but let me just give you one layer to it right now. What is this verse saying? It's talking about Jesus. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. In other words, earth was too small to contain Jesus' glory. If you want to look for a place that is fitting for Jesus to rule and to reign and to live. It's not here. As much as I love Vancouver, it's not here in Vancouver. It's not here where there's sickness and suffering and evil and sin and death and mourning and crying and pain. It's not here. You know where it is? It's not here. It's not here where Jesus' name is used as much as a curse word as it is used on the lips of people who praise him. It's, it's in another place. It's heaven. It's where Jesus' name is the only name that is worshiped. It's the place where there's no more crying, no more sickness, no more cancer, no more COVID, no more, no, no, no more you know, demon possession, no more depression, no more death, no more sin, no more evil, no more of that because it is heaven. And that is the fitting place where Jesus ought to reign. And so let him have the due praise that he deserves. That's why in you know, Philippians chapter two, it says that after Jesus died, on the cross. What happened? God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee would bow on heaven, on the earth, and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Oh, come on. Would you give Jesus some praise? Amen. Would you shout to God in this place because he's worthy? 
In other words, in heaven, Jesus has the name, the acclaim, and the fame that he deserves. We can't give him that kind of fame. As much as I love what we do here at Thrive, you know what? Our efforts are just like feeble compared to what he deserves. The Bible says, make his praise glorious. But that's an impossible task when it comes to Jesus because he's worthy of infinite glory. That's him. Heaven, his, the praises of heaven are his due. So let him go there. Let him be the one who's worshiped above anything else. And that's also why if you're going through a tough time right now, can I tell you something? Can I remind you something? Jesus is greater. Jesus is the one who ascended high above everything else. And so don't worship your problem and bow down to it as if it's got you, it's captured you, you're a slave to it. No, worship the one who ascended higher than every heaven. His name is Jesus. If you believe that, say amen. Reason number seven, why the ascension is so important. By ascending, Jesus made it possible for his disciples to grow and to step into their destiny. So let me put it this way. If Jesus hadn't ascended, the disciples wouldn't know what they were capable of. They would just keep on depending on Jesus to do everything. Uh, Jesus, you preach. Uh, no, G Jesus, you teach. Uh, Jesus, no, you, you serve. No, no, Jesus, you heal. Jesus, you pray. Because they'd be, oh, I, I can't, I can't. You, Jesus is here. But see, it's because there's a certain security, a certain comfort, even a certain complacency that comes when you always have your leader around. But there's also a certain strength and a certain courage that rises up in you that you need to muster when that same leader is gone. And see, sometimes it's only when a leader goes away that people step up. We see that happening often in churches that you know, a leader isn't available to lead in a particular season. Maybe they're going to have a baby or they're injured or you know, they, they've, they've got a season where they need to focus on other things. And what we see so often happen is that people, oh, it's the end of the world. What are we going to do? But people step up. And God does things through people because leaders step up when other leaders aren't able to. And what's that? That's the power of the Holy Spirit working in the church. Amen. And see, here's a lesson for leaders. If you're leading a team at work, at church, in, at home, if you want the people on your team to step up as leaders, sometimes it requires that you step back and don't do everything yourself. Give them the space they need to succeed. Give them the freedom they need to fail. Give them the chance they need to rise to the occasion because that's how people grow. Here's a question for you today. Do you ever wonder why God feels distant sometimes? Do you ever wonder, oh God, are you even there? It's not because he's not there. It's not because he doesn't care. It's because he's training you. He's training you to grow is that if God just coddled you and overprotected you and sheltered you in every possible way imaginable and did everything for you, guess what? You will be the spoiled, complaining, picky, immature little baby that never is able to do anything on their own. But God, sometimes he takes a step back so that you can take a step up. And see, by taking off Jesus, he forced his disciples to take off in their own way, in their leadership, in their courage, in their character, in their responsibility. That's why Jesus' ascension was essential to the disciples' growth. That's, that's reason number seven. Reason number eight, and we'll close with this one. Jesus' ascension opened the way for his church to receive the Holy Spirit. Let me put it this way. If Jesus didn't ascend, the Holy Spirit could not descend. That was always God's plan, is that Jesus here, he goes up, 
Now the Holy Spirit can come down and be with us. And so God, even today, has never really left you. You have him if you've got his Holy Spirit. And see, as John chapter 16, verse 7 says, this is Jesus talking, he says, but I tell you the truth, it is for your good that I go away. Unless I go away, the counselor will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. He's talking about how one day I'm going to go away, but I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit whom you need to live this life and be on the adventure that I've called you to. And that's what we turn to right now. See, Acts chapter two. This coming week in our Pastor JB's game time sharing that you guys are following and you can sign up for that even today. We're gonna look in depth at Acts chapter two. It's one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. And we're gonna spend a number of days on it because it is the watershed moment where the Holy Spirit comes upon the church, just as Jesus promised, and does so in incredible fashion. The gospel ends up going out to thousands of people from different nations, and thousands of people respond. And see, when you read Acts 2, I want to encourage you this coming week to keep these things in mind. You might even want to write them down. One thing to keep in mind is this theme, which is that God is a heart for every nation. Every people group, every culture, every country, God has a heart for every person on this planet, regardless of who they are, regardless of where they're from. God has a heart for everyone, and he wants everyone to know him. That's the first theme. The second theme is the theme of team. It was that it takes a team to serve and follow Jesus. How do you know that your most important partner in life is the Holy Spirit? But God didn't make you just a partner with the Holy Spirit. God made you to partner with others who are following him as well. It's called his church. And so that's why I encourage you, if you're here at Thrive, you got to be in a small group. Got to be in a community, in a team, because that's how we grow together. If you don't be part of a small group, inevitably, effectively, whether you want to or not, you'll be more like a spectator in church. Is that you can enjoy our services, but you're not connecting with anybody. And when something happens to you, no one knows, and you can't really grow with anybody. But when you're in a small group, you can support one another. You can check in on one another. You can encourage one another. You can pray with one another. You can do life together. When something happens to you, other people can know it. And see, sometimes it kind of, you know, gets, get, you get is an interesting for me when someone doesn't join a small group, but then expect everyone to know about what they're doing. How, we're on a church of our size. We can't do that. Is that you need to be in a small group. You need to be connected because it's about being part of a team. Turn to him and say, you were made to be part of a team. I mean, made to be part of a team. That's why be part of a small group. If you're not part of a small group, maybe your small group is taking a break because our hardworking small group leaders also deserve a break and some of them might be taking a break in the summer. You can have community another way. Come to prayer meeting. Tuesdays, every single Tuesday at 8.30 p.m. on Zoom, we meet together to pray, but it's not just prayer. Community happens there as well. It's an awesome way to do community. It's the theme of team, third theme, and this is the last theme for Acts chapter two. It's the unique power of Jesus' name to save. See, in Jesus' name, there is power to save. A power that doesn't exist in anything else or anyone else. Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 38 with me. What does it say? It says, Peter replied, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. See, Peter 
He's standing up with the 11, the other 11 disciples. Notice he's not doing this on his own. He's with a team and he speaks and he preaches the gospel in a fearless way. The very guy who denied Jesus three times is now preaching about Jesus to thousands because the Holy Spirit has empowered him. And now he's preaching the gospel and he's talking about how you need Jesus. He's speaking to thousands of people and thousands of people respond to the simple message that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. His is the name that saves. And you a couple weeks ago, I was watching this documentary on the one-child policy in China. How in the People's Republic of China, there were several decades where they had a one-child policy where the government basically said to every person, every family, you're only allowed to have one child. And as part of the one-child policy, there were literally millions of sterilizations that were forced on women so they couldn't have children. There were abortions, millions of abortions of children that were forced, that they were literally taken away from the mom, killed, and left in garbage, pla- garbage heaps. And it was just, just pretty horrific to see. And in this documentary, there's this one midwife, this woman who's probably in her 60s or 70s, and she was sharing how, as a midwife, for decades, she was involved in approximately 60 to 70,000 forced sterilizations and forced abortions. And despite the fact that the government would say, this is good for the country, this is right, don't worry about it, she carried this extremely heavy burden on her heart and on her shoulders of all the babies that she caused to pass away. And, you know, she went to see a monk who she says was about 108 years old. And the monk told her, if you want to get rid of your burden, if you want to pay for your sins, then go and help as many couples who can't have babies to have babies and give as much to charity as you can. And for every baby that you allow to come to this world, that will pay for 100 babies that you killed. That's what this monk said. And what this lady took it seriously. And so over the past several years, she's, been, she's got all these plaques with her name on it of the, the people, the people, the couples that she helped to have a baby. And she's kind of pointing to these as, okay, I hope one day I can catch up to all my sins so that I can be forgiven because I believe there's a God and I believe there's someone out there, but I I, I need to pay for my sins. And when I saw that, I was heartbroken. I was so sad because here's this woman who's desperately trying to make up for her sins by doing this now when there's only one name that can save. It's the name of Jesus. And here she is in her own name, trying to do all these things as if saving one baby cancels out a hundred babies that were killed. As if that even computes, as if if that's the way that God sees it, God doesn't see it that way. And as if we can somehow have the ability to earn our way to heaven that way, we can. That's why Jesus came. That's why Jesus died. That's why we need a savior. That's why Jesus paid for the price of us on the cross. It's because there's only one name that can save. It's the name of Jesus. And because Jesus Christ died and he rose again, we have a way to come back to God because God didn't want to leave us separate from him. He didn't want us to carry this hopeless, infinite burden of our sins from the past. He said, I don't want to be separate from you. I love you with all of my heart. So I'm going to send Jesus, my son, to do what you can't do. He's going to die so you can live. Oh, would you give Jesus some praise in this place right now? It's because you can't pay for your own sins. The Bible says it over and over. No payment is ever enough. 
I can't pay for my own sins. No amount of good I do, no matter how good I think I am, I can never get to God on my own. But the good news is when I couldn't reach God, God reached for me and he reached for you too. He sent Jesus Christ to die for us. And that's why I'm here to tell you today, just like Peter told the thousands there, I'm here to tell you here on site and online, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins so that you can receive his Holy Spirit. It's because there's one name that saves. It's the name of Jesus. And it's with that in mind that if you've never opened up your heart to Jesus and asked Jesus for the forgiveness that he won for you on the cross, don't delay. Don't wait till tomorrow. Don't try to earn your way there hopelessly. Instead, place your trust in the one name that saves. It's the name of Jesus Christ. Would you all stand to your feet right here, right now? I want to lead you in a prayer to respond to God today. Maybe realize that this message is for you. And maybe for the longest time, you're kind of like that midwife who is trying to earn her way to heaven, trying to make up for all her sins. And you realize today that actually, it's a silly thing to try to do that because I can never make up for all that. But the fact is, the good news is, I don't have to because Jesus paid the price for me. And because he paid the price for me, I can have forgiveness and I can do good not to earn anything. I can do good simply as a response to how God loved me first. So with every head bowed and every eye closed, both on site and online, I just want to lead you in a prayer right now. And if you realize today that you're a sinner who needs a savior, if you realize today that the burden of sin is heavy and you want that burden of sin, that guilt, that shame to be lifted off of your shoulders and placed on the one who can bear it all for you. If you want forgiveness, not that you can earn it, but forgiveness that Jesus paid for on the cross, then why don't you lift up your hand to God right now? Lift up your hand to God right now, both on site, online. Don't worry about your neighbors, not between you and them, it's between you and God right now. Lift up your hand to God. And this is your way of expressing your need for Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need you and your name to be the one to save me. If that's you, why don't you lift up your hand to God and maybe that's you. One of our team members might come to you with a little card that you can, with a prayer that you can pray. If you're online, you can click the link that's in your chat room, scan the QR code that's on your screen and you're gonna take it, it'll take your same prayer that you can pray. And we're just gonna all pray this together in support of those praying it for the first time. This is the most awesome decision you could make is to receive Jesus and his forgiveness in your life. So why don't you pray this prayer with us right now. Let's pray it together and just say this with me right now. Say, Dear Jesus, thank you that because you love me, you died on the cross to pay for my sins. You rose again to give me life. Today, I open up my heart and I ask you, please forgive me of all of my sins and please fill me with your Holy Spirit. I place my trust not in what I do, but in what you've done for me. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. Would you give God some praise in this place together right now? If you prayed that prayer and you meant that prayer, what you did is what Peter talked about. Repent and be baptized. You've done the first part. You're repenting. You're looking to Jesus. I encourage you to do the second thing. Do it this summer. Do it July 24th. Get baptized for the forgiveness of sins in the name of Jesus and receive his Holy Spirit. Encourage you to sign up for that at mythought.info. Press the baptism button to do so. Sign up for baptism and we'd love to help you with that because it's not about us. It's all about Jesus. Would you give Jesus Christ, the one about whom it's all about, would you give him all the praise today? Amen. Oh, come on. There's more than that. Give God all of your praise today. 
Hello, everyone. Welcome to Thrive Church. My name is Kathy, and it's so great to be here with you guys today. Before I let you guys go, I have a few announcements for you. If it's your first time here, we would love to get to know you better, so please text new to 604-285-5770 or visit info, and we'll mail you your very own Thrive Stainless Steel water bottle. If you're on-site at Leaf on Place, you can pick one up at the Welcome Center by the exit door after service. If you made the decision to receive Jesus Christ into life, then baptism is your next step. Our next Baptism Sunday is happening July 24th. Baptism is one of the most exciting things we do here at Thrive, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. For more information or to sign up, visit MyThrive.info. For all the parents here at Thrive, if you have any children ages 3 to 9, we're hosting our very first Thrive Kids VBS summer camp called Make Wave from August 2nd to August 5th. Join us for an exciting week of games, activities, and crafts. Your kids can also learn how they can make a positive impact and share God's love with the people around them. For more information or to sign up, visit MyThrive.info. Last but not least, if you're not currently part of a small group at Thrive, we highly encourage you to join one. This is the best way to meet new friends, pray, support, and to have fun with one another. To sign up, visit MyThrive.info. That's it for this week. I hope you all have a great day. Don't forget to give your tithes and offerings online at MyThrive.info. Have an amazing Sunday afternoon, and I'll see you all next week online or on-site at Lee Pond Place. Bye!